This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, you'll get more tips on how to raise a legendary Nordic child, which includes, but is not limited to, turning him into a werewolf. Also, we'll see the effectiveness of filtering toxins from ale with your mustache, and learn that there's no such thing as too much revenge. For the creature of the week, it's a super pleasant waterfall dweller who will teach you how to play the fiddle. You just have to bring your goat. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 3B, All That Hate's Gonna Burn You Up. My wife and I moved recently, so this is now coming to you from the new world headquarters of the Myths and Legends podcast in upstate New York. With all the preparations, I didn't have time for an episode last week. We're still getting settled, and moving isn't conducive to writing and recording podcasts, so the episodes might not be super consistent for the next couple of weeks, but they're coming. Thanks for sticking with me. Also, a huge thanks to dboy89 for the first review on iTunes. That's his name on there. I have no idea who he is, really. That's the only one I can see, at least. I know Apple banks a number of reviews before publishing them, so thank you if you've reviewed it and I just can't see it. If you, are, if you want to write one, I'll totally mention your name on the show. So thanks again to anyone who's reviewed it so far. Previously on the podcast, we followed an ill-fated Norse family as they rose to power. The patriarch, King Volsung, was betrayed by his son-in-law, King Sigir, on a visit, and all but one son died. Sigmund, the son who lived, made his way off into the forest and plotted revenge on King Sigir. Queen Signy, Volsung's daughter, conspired with her brother, and after a few failed attempts, realized that Sigmund needed a true Volsung child to help avenge their father. She deceived him into thinking she was someone else and became pregnant with their son. She gave birth to Sinfjolti, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who grew up strong and tall, despite that really being genetically unlikely. After losing her first two sons in the forest, she had taken to testing her sons in a different way to see if they were ready to join Sigmund. She would stitch their tunics while the boys were wearing them, and then began stitching them to the boys' wrists. All she and King Sigir's kids wailed at the completely reasonable point where she started poking the needle in their skin. Sinfjolti, though, didn't even flinch. She sewed both cuffs and got no response. She then took the shirt off the boy, tearing skin from his wrists, and mentioned how that really should have hurt him. He scoffed and said the pain is nothing for a true Volsung. This ritualistic child abuse apparently served its purpose, and she sent the boy to her brother in the forest. That night, Sigmund tried the same bread-making test he had tried with the other children, and came back to find the dough rising near the fire. He smiled and asked the boy what happened. Sinfjolti replied that he started working with the flour and thought that there was something alive when he was kneading the dough, but he kept kneading and whatever was alive in there was definitely dead now. Sigmund said two things. One, that's great, you're obviously a true Volsung, and two, you really shouldn't eat the bread, because that living thing was an extremely poisonous snake. He took the boy in as his ward. It's said that during summers, the men would roam the forest, killing men for plunder. There are two ways to look at this. One is that they just turn into common brigands and bandits, killing for fun and profit, and to train up Sinfjolti. The second is them waging a guerrilla war in a foreign land. Remember that Volsung was in King Sigir's land when he died, so they are still in the enemy king's forest. 
Granted, Sigmund killed children in the last story, for me, clearly crossing the moral event horizon, so I shouldn't try to rationalize their behavior. In all likelihood, they were just acting like common thieves, killing people to get gold and train up Sinfjolti. Sigmund marveled at the boy and couldn't believe he was the son of King Sigir. Not only did he have the power, energy, and fearlessness of a Volsung, but he reminded Sigmund constantly of his duty to avenge his father and kill King Sigir. They do this for a time until they chance upon a cabin with men sleeping inside. They almost kill and rob these men when they see wolf skins hanging above their bed. Both men, probably thinking about how cool it would look to murder while wearing the skins, put them on. That's what saves the lives of the men, because as soon as the skins are on, they feel the transformation. Yep, they're werewolves now. This feral panic takes over, and they run out of the cabin into the forest. They get their wits about them enough to communicate, and agree that they're going to try to fight some guys and try out these new powers. They agree they won't fight more than the arbitrarily chosen seven men at a time, though. If one got in a bad spot, he would howl, and the other would come help him immediately. As an aside, this is an early example of a berserker. A berserker is an uncontrollable legendary Norse warrior who would go into battle wearing animal skins, usually bears, and would just go into an uncontrollable battle frenzy. People believe that wearing the skins would help them channel the animal itself. The word berserker comes from two Old Norse words, ber, meaning bear, and zerker, meaning shirt or coat. So the word berserker actually means bear shirt. The two Volsungs separated, and Sigmund chances upon seven men and is quickly overmatched. He howls, and Sinfjolti rushes in, and they defeat the men together. They separate again, and Sinfjolti finds eleven men, and decides to test his mettle and take them all on himself. It's a long fight, and at the end Sinfjolti is victorious, though badly wounded. He slumps next to an oak tree and watches the thirsty ground drink up his blood. Uncle Father Sigmund comes and sees his ward and learns what happened to him. Sinfjolti says that he's no mere child who needs help with seven men. Look at the bodies all around him. He took on eleven and lived. Sigmund understood the insulting implication and lashed out at the already wounded Sinfjolti, piercing his windpipe. The teen wolf lost consciousness, and Sigmund, his acute anger now subsiding, realized that the young man needed help. He threw Sinfjolti over his shoulder and took him back to the hovel. Back home, Sigmund tried to take the wolf skins off, but found that pulling at the fur was as if he was pulling at his own skin. It wouldn't move. For the moment, they were trapped that way. To make matters worse, Sinfjolti didn't regain consciousness, and it was obvious that the boy would die if Sigmund didn't do something quickly. The wolfman ran outside, and an almost literal deus ex machina ensued. He sees two ferrets fighting, and one bites the other on the neck. It goes and finds a leaf, and places it on the wound, magically healing the wound instantly. Sigmund has a very obvious idea, and goes and finds a similar leaf. He sees it moments later, clutched in the grasp of a raven. Odin, as it turns out, wants to help the outlaws, and has sent one of his ravens with a leaf. It drops the leaf, and Sigmund snatches it up with his wolf paw, taking it home and placing it on Sinfjolti's wound, the boy springing up completely healed and somehow not at all mad about the attack that precipitated it. Their luck further improves days later, when they wake up and find that the wolf skins are mere skins again. 
not waiting to see if they would turn back. They take off the hated things and burn them. Unbeknownst to them, you could take off the enchanted wolf skins once every ten days. Not that that mattered, though, because they are burned and gone. Nothing of real consequence having actually happened during the whole wolf episode. Oh well, I guess they can't all be winners. Sinfjolti continued to train under Sigmund until the day Sigmund decided that they were ready to avenge King Volsung. They came late in the evening to King Sigir's great hall and somehow slipped silently into a room filled with ale casks just off the main hall. Signy met with them and told them to wait until it became dark and she would make sure that the king was in a vulnerable position so that they could take their revenge. They nodded and sat down fully armored and waited. Time passed, and they heard ringing and laughter in the hall. It came closer and closer, until a gold ring was flung into the storeroom. They jerked up to hide farther back, but it was too late. Two children, King Sigir and Queen Signy's youngest, looked up at the armored men and cocked their heads. Neither Sigmund nor Sinfjolti thought quick enough to, um, handle the situation before the boys ran off to tell their father. King Sigir was confused but laughed it off with his boys and told Signy to get them out of the room. Queen Signy took them to the storeroom with the two Volsling men and told them that the boys had betrayed them. They needed to take care of these children and then get out. Sigmund, understandably, said he was tired of killing children on behalf of his sister and refused and made to leave. Then, Sinfjolti gritted his teeth and did what his uncle father refused to do. He ran the boys through with his sword. He didn't follow his mother's advice, though, and was sick of Sigmund's planning and hiding and living in the forest like a scared animal. Sinfjolti was going to do what his uncle father should have done long ago, avenge Volsung. He dragged his brother's bodies to go confront the king. Sigmund shrugged. Now is as good a time as ever, and if the Volsungs were finally going to be ended, they might as well end together. He followed his son into the great hall. King Sigir was surprised to see the boy he thought he lost to the forest years ago, now a man intending to do him violence. Sinfjolti flung the bodies toward the horrified king and began closing in on him. It was then that he noticed armor shining in the shadows behind the king. Sigir had prepared after hearing the report from his children. Sigmund rushed into the room, and the two Volsungs, though fighting furiously, were overmatched and taken captive. King Sigir, displaying a hubris stereotypical of villains, decides not to kill them immediately, but to bury them alive. It must be noted that he recognizes his son, but not Sigmund, so in his mind, the plan to kill the Volsungs all those years ago by exposing them in the forest was a smashing success, so he would have no reason to believe that having the two die a slow death where he can't see them would be anything but. He has a burial mound dug, and the two thrown in unceremoniously. Queen Signy, feigning tears over her lost children, comes up to the mound with straw as the serfs are filling in the hole with dirt. She tosses the straw in and says to the serfs that under the pain of death, they are not to speak of this. They don't really care anyway and continue packing dirt. Sigmund and his son are separated by a stone so they can hear each other die but not see each other. As dirt sprinkles down, Sigmund sees something thud through the stone dome and investigates the straw. As it turns out, it's his sword, Odin's gift from all those years ago that Sigir had taken when he captured the Volsungs. Unable to think of anything else to do, 
Sigmund wailed on the stone in the center with the sword, and, to his surprise, he found that it not only didn't blunt the blade, but that the sword was hacking through the stone. He cleared a path to Sinfjolti, and they hacked away at the surrounding dirt, stone, and iron for days until they pushed themselves above ground and felt the cool night air. There would be no more sneaking, no more hiding. The Volsungs went straight for the king's estate, hacking through anyone that stood in their way. The king, thinking that these two brigands were dead, had only a light guard which was quickly overwhelmed. It was only a matter of time until they were standing in King Sigir's bedroom. Sigmund woke King Sigir and Queen Signia and motioned for his sister to come to him. He announced to King Sigir, Here we are, myself and Sinfjolti, my sister's son. We intend for you to know that not all Volsungs are dead. After he said this, he took a lantern and smashed it on the floor by the bed, where King Sigir sat up, eyes wide, and confronting his own demise. The bed went up instantly, and the Volsungs stood there until the king's screaming stopped. The fire blazed behind them, and on their way out, they made it a point to knock down every torch and lantern they saw. Sigir and his line would end tonight. They got to the door, and the servants and soldiers were gathered outside, watching the great hall go up. Sigmund and Sinfjolti crossed the threshold, but Signy stayed behind. Her brother urged her to come on, get out of there. The hall is coming down, but she refused. She told Sigmund about the sorceress and Sinfjolti's parentage. She also said that, Everything I have done has been to bring about King Sigir's death. I have done so much to achieve vengeance that to go on living is out of the question. I shall now gladly die with King Sigir, reluctant though I was to marry him. She kissed her brother and son, and bade them farewell before walking into the inferno. The great hall collapsed moments later. I can't say for certain why Signy did what she did, and my research on the matter has yielded no real answers, so I can only interpret what she says. The way I like to read it is that, having devoted her whole life to the destruction of Sigir, she now had nothing else. She was a young woman when she was married off, and had spent decades in anger, plotting. I think it's safe to say that given her sacrifice of multiple children, as well as committing the taboo acts of incest, as well as killing her husband, she was now facing a profound emptiness. She had done so many unspeakable things to accomplish this goal that it changed her into a different person, a person wholly incapable of living a normal, happy life now that the goal was met. Besides, she had one more duty to fulfill. A guild, the literal price in gold for committing murder, was in place to halt the cycles of revenge and retribution, which served as another sort of price. King Sigir had symbolically paid the guild for the Volsungs with his life and the lives of his sons. Now, she could truly be the man's wife and commit this form of ritualistic suicide called Sati, where the wife throws herself on her husband's funeral pyre. There's some evidence of this in Viking times, and there's been speculation that it meant that she would go with her husband to the afterlife and be his wife there. He has paid for his crimes, so now she can truly be his wife. This, coupled with her being unable to move on after her intense anger and violence, seems to me to be the most likely reading of her last words. I can imagine King Sigir's warriors rushing to the estate, with the glow of the blaze illuminating the Swedish forests. Sigir's guard, soldiers, servants, and fighting men gathered around the burning estate, watching it crumble to embers. When the ruins are black and smoking, Sigmund and Sinfjolti said that they had taken revenge on Sigir and ended his line. 
they would be taking some ships south to return home to the kingdom of the Volsungs, and whoever would join up with them would be rewarded. Many stayed in Sigir's kingdom to fill the power vacuum left by the dead king, but many left with the Volsungs. The Volsungs had come decades ago, a whole family and a fighting force, but now they left just two men, ignobly forced to live as exiles in a strange land. They sailed south with several of Sigir's ships. They came back to Volsung's kingdom and found that in the power vacuum left by the dead king, another had declared himself ruler and had been over the kingdom for years. He was quickly dispatched by the Volsungs and the armies of the north, and they went to work re-establishing themselves. Sigmund, no longer a young man, sat on the throne his father once occupied, and married a woman named Borghild, beautiful name, and had two sons, Helgi and Hammond. On the day of Helgi's birth, Norns showed up, and proclaimed that he would be a great king, and that his fame would surpass all others. A Norn is a supernatural woman that can show up on the day of a birth, and proclaim the destiny of a child. These shouldn't be confused with the three Norns that live at the roots of Yggdrasil, the World Tree, and water the roots. These three are analogous to the three fates in Greco-Roman mythology, and thus control the fates of mankind. It's said that Helgi and Sinfjolti led King Sigmund's troops together when Helgi was only 15, and for the first time in years, the Volsungs existed in relative peace. You can take the Viking out of the raiding, but you can't take the raiding out of the Viking. And so, with all of their revenge accounts settled, Helgi decides to open up a new one, lest they have too prosperous and peaceful a kingdom. While raiding in nearby lands, he and his men kill King Hunding and several of his sons, winning a great victory where there will definitely not be any violent repercussions. On his way back, he spies a large party of women in the forest. The leader, the largest and most beautiful, was named Sigrun. Helgi immediately begins hitting on her. She reciprocates, but is actually engaged to King Hodbrod. But hey, she doesn't want to marry that guy anyway, so if Helgi just does her the tiniest favor of meeting him in open battle, she'd be happy to marry Helgi. Helgi immediately commits his troops to this endeavor and issues a challenge to King Hodbrod, and both sides build up an army. The story of Helgi is largely tangential to this saga, but there's an interesting portion. After he and Sinfjolti sail up with their armies to confront King Hodbrod, because Helgi has decided he wants to risk thousands of human lives so he can go on a date, it's said that Sinfjolti knows how to parlay with kings, so he takes the lead in the preliminary repartee. When I read parlay, I imagined a long, respectful, and boring conversation. When Sinfjolti says parlay, though, he means short, insulting, and bombastic words with the rival king. They trade barbs about how the other is a homosexual, has been castrated, and has been impregnated by the one saying the insult. Here's a few of these gems. You probably don't remember when you were a witch and wanted to marry a man and chose me for the role of husband. That one's a bit wordy. You were a Valkyrie. These were Odin's warrior maidens. I sired nine wolves on you, and I was the father of them all. That one being pretty redundant. You were gelded by the giant's daughter on Thrasnus. And lastly, the super dull. You are not able to say much of worth or speak of ancient lore. Burn. Helgi jumps in and says that, wow, this is pretty dumb. He doesn't like Hodbrod, but he respects him enough to not continue this, and there's no point in standing around saying shameful things. Let's just fight. 
Sinfielty drops the mic and walks off, and then invades and slaughters Hodbrod's army. Stay classy, Norse warriors. Anyway, Helgi handily wins and marries Sigrun because the Volsungs need another Sig name and passes from our story. Sinfjolti and the armies are out raiding and being successful when Sinfjolti spies a woman he would like to pursue in the manner in which Vikings courted women they found on raids. As it turns out, Sigmund's wife's brother was out raiding with Sinfjolti and determined that he too would like to court the woman, proving once again that the only thing more dangerous than being a Volsung is crossing a Volsung on even the most trivial of matters, Sinfjolti challenges him to a duel for the woman's favor and kills him adding yet another unpaid balance to the debit side of the revenge ledger. When he gets home, he brags about his exploits and, oh yes, Borghild's brother is dead. Borghild is enraged and demands blood, or at the very least, exile for Sinfjolti. King Sigmund refuses, saying that the most Borghild is going to get will be for Sinfjolti to pay the Weregild for the death, though even that is said to be unorthodox. It was fair, it was a duel, and Sinfjolti made no attempt to hide it. If anything, paying a weregild was unjust. But Sinfjolti will pay it, even if he didn't feel like he did anything wrong. Further spitting in Borghild's eye and straining the bonds of decency and good taste, Sinfjolti shows up to the man's funeral feast. I imagine him remarking that the weregild he just paid probably went towards funding the feast. Because didn't you hear he actually killed him? Did you? Want to hear about how it went down? Clenching her teeth off to the side, Borghild decides to do something about this jerk. She walks out with some ale for him. He remarks that it looks a little cloudy. You wouldn't be trying to poison me, would you? And laughs with his buddies. Sigmund, knowing the hate burning within his wife, takes the horn and downs it. Nothing. They continue partying. Borghild then comes out with a second drink for Sinfjolti, and Sigmund doesn't waste a minute in intercepting her and drinking it. Still nothing. Something was off, though, and Sigmund was on his guard. Borghild comes out with a third drink, and when Sigmund starts over, she chides Sinfjolti, asking if his daddy's going to drink all of his drinks. When Sigmund gets there, he doesn't swipe the drink, but instead jokes that Sinfjolti should strain it through his mustache to get the poison out. Because if you drink all your drinks, and someone else's, surprise, you'll get really drunk. Whether or not Sinfjolti believed the drink not to be poisoned, or was so far gone himself to actually think he could filter poison through his mustache is unknown. But he took a long draught. He smiled, bobbed a bit, and his head slammed down on the table. He was dead. That's where we'll leave the Volsungs. Next time, we'll move out of the gritty George R.R. R. Martin political drama, and things will get much more Tolkien-y with a legendary sword broken and reforged, a magic ring, and a dragon sleeping on a pile of treasure. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. It's a super easy, free way to support the show, and it'll help more people find it. You can find it on iTunes at itunes.mythpodcast.com and on Stitcher at stitcher.mythpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter at at mythpodcast. For the mythological creature this week, you'll see that you don't have anything to fear if you're rafting down a river and hear a fiddle, unless you're in the American South, in which case run, run as fast as you can. The creature this time is the Fossigrim, a being who lives in waterfalls and plays the fiddle. 
He's from Scandinavian mythology. He plays it so well, in fact, that according to Jacob Grimm, tables and benches, cup and can, graybeards and grandmother, blind and lame, even babies in the cradle, will begin to dance at one of his songs. Want to make babies and grandmas dance with your stellar fiddle playing? He's happy to teach you. You have to sneak to a waterfall on a Thursday and do one of two things. Either throw a white he-goat into the waterfall with his head turned away from the water, or come with mutton stolen from a neighbor's storage over the course of four consecutive Thursdays. Because everyone knows stolen mutton is the best mutton. If this sounds ridiculously complex, you're right, but you'll be rewarded with a fossagrim drawing your fingers out over your fiddle strings until they bleed. Then, however, you'll be able to play so well that trees dance and waterfalls stop. The legend was so pervasive that famous European fiddle players in the 1800s actually had to deny that they learned from the creature. If you're thinking that, like most mythological creatures, there's some horrible consequence for bringing an insufficient offering, then you'd be wrong. If your goat is thrown incorrectly, or there's not enough meat on the stolen mutton bone, then he'll just teach you how to tune your fiddle and be on your way. All in all, the Fossagrim, like the Barbagazi from last week, sounds like a pretty good guy. Unless you're a goat. That's it for this week. The theme music is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by the mysterious Steve Combs. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.